0: I think since just about every seat has been taken, and the dean and and Mrs. Hempton have come, what more to wait for? (laughs) Um, We can probably begin. And um, if anyone comes in, uh, maybe we can find seats in the back for them as well. So I'd like to welcome you to our very distinguished event tonight. Uh, If you are here for the first time, I'd like to welcome you to the center. If you have been here many times, welcome back. My name is Frank Clooney, I'm the director of the Center and very happy to be your host for this event tonight. So we have tonight the Albert and Vera List Jewish Studies Lecture. Uh, The List family and the List Fund was actually very original to the Center and one of the founding uh, gifts that helped make the Center possible back in the late 50s, 1960. And Professor John Levinson of our faculty is the List Professor of Judaism, and he unfortunately uh, cannot be here tonight. But for a very long time, therefore, we've been grateful to the family of Albert and Vera Liszt. And only about five years ago, though, did we start making an annual event of the lecture in their honor that would bring in a distinguished scholar of Jewish studies to the center. So we're very happy tonight to continue that tradition. Uh, In 2012, the first lecture was given by Lewis Newman from Carleton College. In 2013, Christine Hayes from Yale University. In 2014, Joel Kaminsky from Smith College. And in 2015, Stephen Kepnes from Colgate University. We're very happy tonight to have Professor Guy Strumpsa, who is Martin Buber Professor Emeritus of Comparative Religion at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, my colleague Charles Steng will give a formal introduction in a moment, but um, I think uh, Professor Strumps is a wonderful addition to our growing list of distinguished speakers. And I cannot help but mention that we have another distinguished Strumpse in the room, Professor Sara Strumsa, who is of the Department of Arabic Language and Literature and Jewish Thought at Hebrew University and also has been the institution's rector, which I think was a very distinguished position. So thank you also for coming tonight. Maybe some other occasion, we can have you give a lecture. That would be quite lovely. Um, So tonight, continuing the ways, different ways, of opening up and exploring Jewish tradition, Jewish legacy, Judaism in comparison, uh, (coughs) Professor Strumpso will speak on Christianity and the God of Israel, Henri Bergson, Simone Weil, and Emmanuel Levinas. But for a more formal introduction, I'd like to um, welcome my colleague, Charles Steng, Professor of Early Christian Thought here at the Divinity School. I could go on for a long time introducing him, but let's keep it brief and welcome Charles to the podium. Thank you,
1: Thank you all. I, I recognize that there are some of you in this crowd who might be able to introduce Guy Strumsseh better than I, who may have, n- have known him longer than I. But in the short time that I have known Guy, uh, he's made an enormous impression on me, and we've become close friends and colleagues. So it's a great honor to be able to introduce him um, and welcome him back to Harvard. Uh, Professor Strumsa has at least two um, uh, well-earned prestigious titles. He is the Martin Buber Professor Emeritus of Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and the Emeritus Professor of the Study of Abrahamic Religions at the University of Oxford. He's also recently held teaching positions at uh, the Humboldt University in Berlin, and currently the University of Chicago, and I believe the University of Michigan recently as well. So he and Sarah have been on the move of late. But behind those titles is um, a, a more personal connection uh, that I'd like to begin with, which is that I, I first met Guy in Jerusalem in the year uh, 2011 when I was on research leave there, and he was unfailingly generous with his time with a young... S- Uh, A young colleague and I think that speaks uh, volumes to his character. Um, We've since spent time together in Heidelberg and Berlin and in Heidelberg I finally had the pleasure of meeting Sarah. To say that Professor Strumpse's research (laughs) focuses on the religions of late antiquity is to say uh, what doesn't really capture his particular genius. He insists on studying these religions comparatively, where all too often we study them in silos. He moves easily between Judaism, Gnosticism, Manichaeism, early Christianity, and increasingly of late, early Islam. And his work sparkles with philological precision, theoretical ambition, and an infectious curiosity. When We issued the invitation to Guy to give this List lecture. He said, well, I don't really do Jewish studies. Um, But Guy's work, or certainly not in uh, a conventional sense, but Guy's work increasingly, well, actually, his early work on Gnosticism significantly uh, was about the uh, Gnostic interpretation of the first chapters of Genesis. And increasingly, his work on Abrahamic religions uh, qualifies Guy uh, to give the List Lecture in Jewish Studies. I mentioned earlier that we're welcoming Guy back. Um, Mm -hmm. He is actually a distinguished alum of this program, the PhD in the Study of Religion, receiving a PhD here in 1978. Some of his classmates, Bill Graham and others, are here. And moreover, and perhaps more importantly, Guy and Sarah were residents here at the Center under the directorship of John Carman, who also is joining us this evening. So it's nice on this HDS bicentennial year to be able to welcome back one of our own. And I'm happy to report that between the time that Professor Strumse has left us uh, and returned, he's been quite busy. I'm going to list six books in the last 20 years, single authored books that Guy has written, give you a sense of the range of his scholarship. Hidden Wisdom, Esoteric Traditions and the Roots of Christian Mysticism, Barbarian Philosophy, The Religious Revolution of Early Christianity, The End of Sacrifice, Religious Transformations in Late Antiquity, A New Science, The Discovery of Religion in the Age of Reason, and very recently two books, The Making of the Abrahamic Religions in Late Antiquity, and most recently, I have my copies straight from the press two weeks ago, The Scriptural Universe of Ancient Christianity, a book which a number of us will be gathering tomorrow to discuss um, with Professor Strupsa. So it's a delight to welcome him to give this lecture entitled Christianity and the God of Israel, Henri Bergson, Simone Veil, Emmanuel Levinas. And you may think by that title, well, this is is quite a wandering from Guy's academic uh, record. Uh, so squarely centered in late antiquity, but in point of fact, this tradition is also Guy's as well. Guy is a native of Paris, and as a young man studied at the École Normale Israelite Orientale, which uh, at that time uh, his principal was of course uh, Emmanuel Levinas, who was a great influence on uh, Professor Strumso. So uh, no less than his work on late antiquity, uh, this French tradition, this, ju- this tradition of French Jewish thought is as much his own. So with that, I would say it's a great pleasure to have you, and please join me in welcoming Professor Strömser to the podium.
2: Well, thank you, Charles. I thought that you might go on for another 50 minutes, and I wouldn't have to speak in front of you. I would have been very happy. OK, uh, in a number of ways, I'm really honored to give the least lecture here. It honors and it flatters me to have been deemed worthy of giving a lecture in Jewish studies, which is not a scholarly discipline, which I can claim to be mine, but I'm also more than happy. I'm moved indeed to come back to Harvard and to the center. 40 years ago, after my wife and I, and our first child, spent some studious and happy and fruitful years here. I remember sitting in a room that doesn't exist anymore for a year and writing furiously my doctoral dissertation as the snow was accumulating. uh, We were babies at the time. I have since then taught and lectured in a number of places but landing at Logan today reminded me of my first discovery of America at its best with some emotion. I wish to thank Professor Charles Tang and Francis Clooney for having invited me and I wish to thank also Professor John Carmen, my old teacher, for having made the effort to come from the beautiful coast of Maine to here. Well, the the real title actually is The Temptation of Christianity, Henri Bergson, Simone Weil, Emmanuel Levinas. And what you'll get is a much shortened version of the longer uh, full version, footnoted version, which I wrote in French. In the 1930s, many European Jewish intellectuals had clear presentiments about the unprecedented wave of persecutions soon to hit the Jews. Such presentiments did not always cause them to change the direction of their religious odyssey in their reflection on the nature of religion and the essence of God. With admirable intellectual courage, those Jews of the catastrophe, as Jean Amery has called them, Sometimes dared to radically distance themselves from (laughs) the God of Israel and from Jewish tradition. They expressed themselves with a clear voice, with what the Apostle Paul called paresia. Here Freud is emblematic. He published Der Mann Moses und die monotheistische Religion during his exile in London, as he lay dying. This book, almost a testament reflects Freud's deep interest in the history of religions, as well as his wish to keep abreast of contemporary scholarly publications. (coughs) I should like to offer here some reflections on the deep attraction Christianity exerted on two leading French thinkers of Jewish origin, Henri Bergson, 1859-1941, and Simone Veil, 1909, 1943. And then to compare their attitudes to that of another French philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, 1906, 1995. Just like Bergson and Veil, Levinas was profoundly attracted to Christianity for many years. Unlike them, however, he did not succumb to this attraction. The philosopher Isaac ben Benrubi, who was close to Bergson for a long time, has preserved many of his sayings for us. For Bergson, according to Ben Benrubi, I quote, Protestantism has no philosophical foundation. Similarly, contemporary Judaism is also unsatisfying, as it is nothing but a ritual. Hence, one cannot speak of a truly Jewish religiosity. End quote. Such a perception of Judaism as a ritual devoid of beliefs echoes, of course, a long-held tradition of Christian anti-Judaism. To the same Ben Rubi, a few years later, Bergson says, I quote, but it is only in Christianity that one can speak of a love of one's enemy and a religion of suffering. In Judaism, even among the prophets, morality is national, or at least not as universal as it is in Christianity. I reached this conclusion through the study of the Christian mystics, Saint Teresa, Saint John of the Cross, etc. This strikes one as a strange intellectual approach, almost a postmodern one, for the philosopher of creative evolution to explain texts from the ancient Near East through modern authors. Ben Roubi adds, On this occasion, Bergson spontaneously denied rumors that were circulating here and abroad, according to which he had converted to Christianity. In the same discussion, Bergson adds, true religiosity is revolutionary. This can be the case only in Christianity. Answering a question on the possibility of finding parallels in other religions, such as Hinduism or Buddhism, he answered, that he had indeed dealt with those religions, but that he lacked knowledge of the texts. In sharp contradistinction to Simon Weil, who, who was a fully engaged revolutionary with workers, peasants, and in the Spanish Civil War, Bergson, who became early on a quasi-official f- figure in France, even before his Nobel Prize, seems very far from any revolution, and yet, the only form of revolution, of religion that appeals to him is one that transforms humanity, revolutionary religion. I do not have the time to retrace here, even succinctly, the argument of his major text on religion, the two sources of morality and religion, les deux sources de la morale et de la religion, published in 1932. Although morality and religion appear in the title to be of equal importance, it is mainly upon religion that Bergson insists. For him, the nature of religion is double. Its primary function is social preservation. Here, Bergson reflects the influence of Durkheim, whom he had met at the École Normale Supérieure. They were students together. This kind of religion, conservative and hence essentially static in nature, does not really interest Bergson. More precisely, it repels him. I quote, the spectacle of what religions were and of what some still are is deeply humiliating for human intelligence. The second sort of religion is dynamic. It is that of founders and reformers of religions, mystics and saints, those whom he also calls the great instructors of humankind. Dynamic religion deeply interests Bergson. It entails movement and transformation, both of society and of the individual. He calls this religion open, (coughs) opposing it to the closed religion of social preservation. Although Bergson does not mention Max Weber, and while I do not know whether he had read him at all, closed religion and open religion sound very similar to Weber's conception of routinized and charismatic religion. And I would add here that uh, uh, Renan, whom Bergson obviously had read, has also a similar uh, uh, characterization of the two steps of religion, charismatic at its beginning and routinized later, before Weber. For Bergson, Jesus can be considered as the successor of the prophets of Israel. The deep transformation of Judaism represented for him by Christianity reflects the passage from a national to a universal religion and from a just God interested only in the fate of his people to a God who loves all humankind. I quote, this is why we hesitate to include the Jewish prophets among the mystics of antiquity. Yahweh was too strict a God. There was not enough closeness between Israel and its God for Judaism to be a mysticism as we define it. The importance of the prophets of Israel is mainly based upon their impetus, or elan in his terms, which alone permits them to overcome the rift between thought and action. The prophets, I quote, had the passion for justice. They claimed it in the name of the God of Israel. And Christianity, which succeeded Judaism, owed in great part its active mysticism to the Jewish prophets. It is thanks to this mysticism that it could come to conquer the world. It is the elan of the Israelite prophets, then, which alone gave Christian mysticism the will and the ability to transform the world. Similarly, Bergson would write in his testament that Christianity represents for him, I quote, the full achievement of Judaism. As noted by Frédéric Worms in his edition of the two sources, Bergson's text leaves some ambiguity and the religion of the prophets seems to remain for him a semi-open religion. It would seem then that the very logic of Bergson's argument should have brought him to grant a much more positive place to the religion of Israel's prophets. But the arguments by which he objects to a more positive vision of Judaism are related to his conception of the biblical God, a just God in contradistinction to the Christian God of love, a national rather than a universal God. These categories were also everywhere in the 19th century study of religion. The reader of the two sources remains under the impression that Bergson makes uses, use of cliches transmitted by the cultural and religious coine of his time, with remaining traces of Marcionism, rather than of the insights of contemporary biblical scholarship. For him, true religiosity, in other words, in other words, open religion, which can only be fully found in Christianity, stands on two essentially different grounds. On the one hand, there is revolutionary elan, seeking to transform humanity. (coughs) On the other, there is love of one's enemy, a a religion of suffering, of which Jesus gave the best example, as Bergson explained to Benrubi. Elsewhere, he declares his faith in him who took upon himself the sins and the sufferings of the whole human race. One finds it hard to understand how these two dimensions are are related, as well as the nature of the mutation effected by Jesus, the prophet's inheritors. The historian of religions is left with a lingering intellectual disappointment when reading Bergson. In his testament, he writes, I quote, my reflections have brought me closer and closer to Catholicism in which I see the total fulfillment of Judaism. I would have converted, had I not seen the preparation for years, partly, alas, due to a number of Jews lacking moral sense of the formidable wave of anti-Semitism about to descend upon the world. I have opted to stay among those who tomorrow will be persecuted." That some Jews were devoid of moral sense in the 1930s, as well as any time before or after, is not in doubt. But that they were partly guilty of the formidable wave of antisemitism, which descended upon the world with the armies of the Third Reich, one is flabbergasted. What could have brought Bergson to give voice to such inanity? A number of testimonies attest to the proposal made by the Vichy government to offer Bergson the title of Honorary Arian, a dubious honor that he refused. <coughs> According to his wishes, his Catholic, a Catholic priest was present at his funeral and said prayers. Just like Bergson, Simon Veil was fully conscious in the 1930s that the Jews were entering particularly tragic times. At the end of March, or at the beginning of April 1938, she spoke to Jean Posternac, a former pupil of hers, about, I quote, an explosion of very violent antisemitism. I see the signs everywhere, adding, all this, I have expected it for a long time, since 1932 exactly. In that same year, 1932, the young Simone Veil, after having spent August and September in Berlin, had published in a communist journal, La Révolution Proletarienne, a long article entitled Impressions from Germany, Germany in Expectation. In this text, she makes no mention whatsoever of of attitudes towards the Jews. Reconstructing Veil's thought on the history of religions in general, and on the God of Israel in particular, is a notoriously complex task. Unlike Bergson, she did not leave a carefully crafted book summarizing her thought in a coherent and systematic way. The critical edition of her works, moreover, is still in progress. Bergson's conception insisted on the historical evolution of religions up to the dynamism of open religion as it blossoms with Christianity. Wei's conception, on the other hand, reflects her belief in a philosophia perennis, in a truth eternal and disseminated since the dawn of time throughout various cultures and civilizations. Like for Bergson, the esotericism of the mystery religions of Greek antiquity, as they were then called, represents the will to protect this universal and eternal truth a truth partaken of by the sages of all nations. One recognizes here a conception already widespread among the late ancient Neoplatonists, which would eventually be picked up in early modern times by some Catholic missionaries in Asia and transformed into a philosophia orientalis. She clarifies her thought in a letter to Jean Val, to the philosopher Jean Val, written in New York in 1942. I quote, I think that an identical thought is expressed precisely and in scarcely different terms in ancient mythologies. She refers here to the pre-Socratics, Pythagoras, Plato, the Stoics, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita, the writings of the Chinese Taoists, and some Buddhist trends, certain Egyptian texts, the great Christian mystics, especially St. John of the Cross, she adds. And finally, some heresies, in particular, the Cathar and Manichean traditions. She concludes, I think that this thought is the truth. Yet, it is the Jews of all peoples who ignore this truth. More precisely, I think that Moses knew this wisdom and rejected it, because like Maurras, the the far-right French uh, politician, he conceived of religion as a simple instrument of national grandeur. Later, some elements of this wisdom did enter Judaism in the form of foreign influences. Thus, Job, the Psalms, the Song of Songs, the wisdom books, Daniel, Second Isaiah, and other lesser prophets. Vei's attitudes towards the Hebrew Bible is usually compared to that of Marcion or of the Gnostics. It is, however, to Mani that Wei's mosaic exception can be more naturally compared. For Mani, the series of prophets, starting with Adam, stretches across ages and civilizations from east to west, Buddha, Zarathustra, Jesus, ending with him, Mani, the last and most perfect of all prophets the seal of prophecy. For money, indeed, only Moses and the other Old Testament prophets are not part of this universal <coughs> frame. Such a Manichean attitude is made particularly explicit in a very long letter to Father Couturier, a Dominican whom Jacques Maritain, the neo, neo-Thomist philosopher, had recommended to her. She wrote this letter with its 35 points in November 1942, two months after writing to Jean Val. This is by far the most detailed document about Veil's opinions on the history of religions in general, and in, on Judaism in particular. I cannot offer here a detailed analysis of this fundamental text, and will limit myself to highlighting, highlighting a few salient points, I quote. What we call idolatry is, to a great extent, a fiction of Jewish fanaticism. All peoples, in all times, have been monotheistic. Were the Hebrews of the good old times to be reborn, and were they to be given weapons, they would exterminate us all, men, women, and children, for the crime of idolatry. They would reproach us for worshiping Baal and Astarte, for claiming that Baal is Christ and Astarte the Virgin, It is not an idol of metal or wood that the Hebrews had, but a race, a nation, something equally earthly. In its essence, their religion was inseparable from this idolatry because of the notion of chosen people. And again, quote again, our civilization owes nothing to Israel and precious little to Christianity. It owes almost everything to pre-Christian antiquity Germans, Druids, Rome, Greece, Aegeo-Cretans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, Babylonians. Or again, the Manichaean tradition is one of those in which one may be assured to find truth if one studies it with enough piety and care. Elsewhere, she writes, Christ was born in a territory belonging to these two rebellious peoples, the Hebrews and the Romans. But the inspiration at the core of the Christian religion is sister to that of the Pelasgians of Egypt and of Ham. The comparison of the Jews and the Romans, just like that of the Roman Empire and the Third Reich, goes on. Furthermore, the spirit of the old law, so far from all mysticism, was not that different from the Roman mind. Rome could accommodate the the god of hosts. Vei concludes her long letter with a near certainty, she says, "I quote: one must have wanted to hide something from us, and one has succeeded. It is no accident that so many texts were destroyed, that there is so much darkness on an essential part of history. There has probably been a systematic destruction of documents. Plato has escaped it. She does not tell us who is at the origin of this effort through the millennia to hide from humans the truth that had been revealed to them. She does, however, offer a suggestion. I quote, the Church has never declared that there was no affinity whatsoever between Christianity and the mystical traditions of countries other than Israel. Why? Isn't it that the Holy Spirit preserved it from lying despite everything? The importance of these problems is today capital, urgent, and political, she underlines. According to her, in the face of this successful effort over the centuries to erase all trace of truth from ecclesiastical tradition, only a few dualist texts miraculously reached us, those of the Gnostics, the Manicheans, and the Cathars. These texts permit us to delineate some elements of that universal wisdom before the church muffled it as the representative of Judeo-Christianity and the God of Israel. We are here at the antipodes of Bergson, for whom revolution was always going ahead in the history of humanity. For they, revolution represents the rejection of history, a return to the sources that the forces of evil had sought to hide from us and their rediscovery. But who, for Veil is this God of Israel? Another text offers a par- partial answer. In supernatural knowledge, la connaissance superna- surnaturelle, they write the Hebrews call God their own collective soul pretending and convincing themselves that it had created and was ruling heaven and earth. One could easily mistake the author of this sentence for a disciple of Durkheim, were it not that, for they, the Hebrews alone had deified their collective soul. Thus, while all other peoples, called idolaters by the Hebrews and hence deserving death, had been monotheists, the Hebrews alone were true idolaters. Did I go too far, too fast, in my interpretation of Simone Weil's fragmentary thought? Another text, dating from 1943, seems to corroborate my reading. A few months before her death, Weil, working in England in the services of Free France, prepared a report on a project submitted to the OCM, Civil and Military Organization. The project was entitled Basis for a Statute of the French Non-Christian Minorities of Foreign Origin. In fact, the, this project dealt mainly, mainly with the future of Jews after the liberation of, Spain, of, of France and proposed to limit their number in the public service, particularly in the higher positions. It is a supreme irony that a Jew, Maxime Bloch Mascal, had penned it. They notes in her report, I quote again, the central idea is correct. The question is not whether the Jewish minority possesses this or that character, but whether this minority exists, or perhaps should exist, at all. Correct also is the idea that it is linked to a certain mentality related to the absence of Christian identity. In her report, she also refers to the so-called Jewish religion, and discusses possible methods in order to avoid contagion, in her words. Writing about the so-called Jewish religion, she is not here very far from Bergson, for whom Judaism, an essentially cultic religion, could not express true religiosity. Among other things, Veil proposes, quote, encouraging mixed marriages and a Christian education for the future generations of Jews. If the god of the Jews is nothing but their collective soul become totem, then their so-called religion (coughs) is not really a religion, but rather what Augustine would have called a falsa religio. And it is imperative to save the Jewish children by preparing them for baptism. To convert the Jewish children would miraculously have managed to escape their hell in Nazi Europe. I find it hard to suggest any word other than odious to describe such a proposal. The fact that Bergson and Veil felt closer to Christianity than to Judaism is easily understandable and reflects both their culture and their psyche. For both, the God of Israel is not really the God announced by the Gospels. The concept of dualism, as used by both philosophers and historians of religions, good versus evil, or matter versus spirit, is not totally adequate for describing the roots of Bergson's and Veil's attitudes. Origi- originally, it seems to me that their rejection of the God of Israel is less philosophical and rational than existential and uncontrolled. Some have spoken of Zelbstras with regard to Simon Vey. What we have seen is enough to understand that such an accusation is not unfounded. One must ask whether, mutatis mutandis, Bergson's personality does not retain, retrain, retain traces of a similar, although weaker, syndrome. The fact that both chose to claim their alienation from the God of Israel at a time of intense persecution of the Jews, which I repeat, they had no intention of escaping, is remarkable. And it testifies to their great intellectual courage. In so doing, and their great courage, full stop, in so doing, however, with either shallow or abstruse arguments They both revealed the extent to which they had lost the keys that could have permitted them to speak of the God of Israel with their usual intelligence and intellectual honesty. Emmanuel Levinas, who belonged to Simone Weil's generation, always expressed the deepest admiration for Bergson, whom he considered to be one of the greatest figures in the history of philosophy. As for Veil, even when he polemicizes against agnostic attitudes and neo Marcionite attacks against the Hebrew Bible, he does so with great respect. She remained for him a genius and a saint, to whom only death, he wrote and used to say, could bring us closer. What I simply want to do here is to retrace the very strong impact Christianity made upon Levinas from his youth onward. Levinas never hid the existential primacy of his own Jewish identity in his thought. In our present context, the evolution of Levinas' thought is less important than the very presence of what he himself has called the temptation of Christianity. I wish to argue that this temptation was present already in the 1930s, before the war, before the Shoah. In a little-known article published in 1939, Levinas writes, I quote, a people of priests, Israel propagates in the world the truths of which it is the custodian. But through its suffering, it accomplishes on a daily basis a mysterious expiatory sacrifice for the human race. End quote. The mystery of Israel is here daily Jewish suffering through the centuries, offered as an expiatory sacrifice for humanity, as if Israel's suffering played a role similar to that of Christ's passion in the cosmic economy of salvation, according to Christian theologians. Actually, Levinas immediately mentions the cosmos after a reference to Isaiah. I quote again. This suffering, which is neither act, nor thought, nor speech, which is not turned outside, but which through the simple fact of its existence can engage the universe and transform it, can tie and untie. Communion deeper than all the world's doctrinal arguments, agreements, sorry. It mystically elevates Israel's peculiar existence to the level of a cosmic event, offering a glance of the pulse of universal history in its own history. The suffering servant of the second Isaiah, then, represents for Levinas, who here faithfully follows a long Jewish Hermeneutic tradition, the very personification of the Jewish people. This text from his youth, Levinas was 33 years old in 1939, is important mainly insofar as it demonstrates that already before the war, Levinas' thought on our present topic was fully formed. Like Bergson and Vey, Levinas had in the 30s a presentiment about the unbearable future, although he certainly could not imagine its full horror. But Lévinas was coming from a very different background. Unlike Bergson and Veil, he had not been born French. He had not studied at the École Normale Supérieure and had not passed the Aggregation Competitive Exam, without which no teaching career was possible. His employer was the Alliance Israelite Universelle, not the French Republic. The richness and subtlety of his written language does not reveal the strong Russian accent that he would keep forever, in contradistinction to Bergson and Vey. Moreover, his access to Jewish to the Jewish sources, which he read in the original Hebrew and Aramaic, was immediate. The Russian poems that the young Levinas composed as a student in Strasbourg in the twenties reflect his literary culture, for someone steeped in Lermontov, Pushkin, Bloch, but also Dostoevsky. French was indeed the language of enlightenment, but it was also the language of yet another Christian culture. For the young Levinas, the Christian dimension of European cultural identity was unavoidable, immediate and unavoidable. Just as he naturally identified himself as a Jew, so he conceived of the collective European identity to be essentially Christian. In comparison with Russia and also with Germany, however, France offered the image of an enlightened Christianity, one where the Jews could find their place. For Levinas, the Jews had very much in common with the Christians, except precisely the core idea of a God who became man for the salvation of humankind. For him, again, it is the Jewish people who accomplish this sacrificial expiatory service throughout world history. Far from reflecting Jewish particularism, of which the Jews are usually accused, the biblical expression, a people of priests, makes Israel into humankind's servant. Hence, the obstinacy on the part of the Jews to retain their own identity, rather than perseverance in being something that Levinas rejects, is actually a universalism. This servant of humanity and of God has been conceived since 2nd Isaiah as a suffering servant. One did not need much imagination in 1939 to know that the suffering servant could not be a mere reference to the ancient past. Less than one year after the publication of of that article, Levinas would become a POW and would remain one until the war was over. As such, he would be protected from the worst fate of the Jews by the Geneva Conventions, which the Wehrmacht applied in the West. Nevertheless, Levinas perceived his five years at the Stalag as the bottom of the pit from which Jonas, in absolute passivity, had been calling God to rescue him. In one of his precious captivity notebooks, Cahiers de Captivité, now finally published, one discovers that instead of Jonas, he had originally written Jesus, and instead of passivity, passion. Levinas lived the Passion of Israel, or the Passion of Passions, as he has called it, barely protected from the very worst, knowing that his wife and his daughter were safely hidden in a convent. In his precarious sheltered condition in the cold Saxon winter, he had retained the possibility to reflect, to read, and to write at the end of the exhausting days in which he worked as a lumberjack. The captivity notebooks have retained a trace of his readings. In captivity, what one reads, what one finds. Among other authors, the romantic Catholic novelist and pamphleteer Léon Blois left a deep impression on Levinas, who notes that he would like to develop a similar approach to Judaism. Levinas also read some Christian mystics. In his captivity notebooks, again, he writes about Teresa of Avila, constant vicinity of merit and grace. A Christian saint had touched the heart of a Jewish Untermensch at the darkest point of the dark night when and where he had lost all power to act, given up all hope to choose. I quote, before hope, in the depth of hopelessness, from pain to happiness, the discovery in the very suffering of the signs of election. All of Christianity is included in this discovery that precedes Christianity itself. Oh, those moments existed when the perverse happiness of suffering would penetrate some of us at the very moment when we realized the triumph of power, le triomphe de la force, and when our affirmation of the eternal love of the the Lord of Israel was no longer a lie or an anachronism. In the captivity notebooks, one further finds (coughs) this ode to suffering. Pain can be infinite. There is something intoxicating in it. For in it, my passivity is made in the bosom of God and my election." Passivity, like that of Israel's passion, discovered at the bottom of the pit during the black years, would eventually become a key term in the major work of his old age, otherwise than being autrement qu'être. Passivity points here not so much to a borrowing from Christian theological parlance, as to a total impregnation of language and of thought. The French language that Levinas made his, in magisterial fashion, is a Christian language, or at least a language Christianized very long ago. For Levinas, the Hitlerian drama, as he called it, was also the very important moment of the Judeo-Christian drama. On the one hand, some Jews then discovered Christian charity. Levinas himself met Christian charity in the Stalag through the fraternal humanity of a number of Christians. On the other hand, he insists on the fact that the hangmen of Auschwitz, I quote, probably all went to Sunday school. Upon his return to Paris at the end of the war, Levinas learns about the mur- murder of all his family in Lithuania and realizes that the suffering of Israel has gone deeper than anything one could have imagined. What can be the meaning of the election that such a suffering reflects? The existence of Israel is indeed a cosmic event, and identifying oneself as a Jew has become, now more than ever, inescapable evidence and indisputable duty. Our temptation is over, writes Levinas in 1953. Let us highlight this sentence. Levinas weighs his words. What was then the nature of Levinas's Christian temptation? And when did he overcome it? We have seen towards the end of the 1930s that it was as a Jew that Levinas was reading Isaiah 53, but with strong Christian accents. In 1935, he had discovered Franz Rosenzweig and his, Ster- and his Stern der Rosenzweig, who died in 1929, had established his theological system while overcoming a crisis that had brought him to the verge of conversion to Christianity. In Rosenzweig's theology, Christianity retained a privileged relationship with Judaism, as well as an essential role in the economy of salvation. This is nothing like Levinas. The categories of the relations between Judaism and Christianity in his thought belong to the existential and cultural realm rather than to the theological. According to Levinas, Christianity is to a great extent a Judaism. That's his words. He immediately adds, however, but it is not to Judaism that Christianity owes its success. According to him, as he writes elsewhere, Christianity is a Judaism for men with pagan problems. (laughs) And the Greek world is included in Christianity. Let us point here that for both Bergson and Vei, but very differently for, for each of them, Christianity retained a special place between Judaism and paganism, or between Athens and Jerusalem. The symmetry with Levinas here is only formal, of course, and the vector is quite different. For Levinas, the prophets of Israel proclaimed the essence of the central Christian ideas much before Jesus' kerygma. Similarly, in the typology of the Church Fathers, the Old Testament was, so to speak, the hard core of the new, a sacramentum futuri. Verus Israel echoed vetus Israel. And humankind could be said to have been Christian avant la lettre, from Adam on, anima naturaliter christiana, in Tertullian's words. Levinas seems not to say anything else, except that for him the vector is inversed. Rather than Judaism being Christianity in it is Christianity that is a Judaism toned down as it were. I quote, according to us, the Jew is man qua man. In other words, that's my phrase anima naturaliter Judea. As is well known, Levinas understands the election of Israel in ethical rather than in theological terms. I quote, the notion of election as conceived by Judaism is not a pre-established religious category. It has an ethical origin, of course, and that entails a surplus of duties. I can still hear him telling us that. Entails a surplus of duties. Similarly, divine revelation passes through the face of the other and the immediate demand emanating from this face. I quote, the infinite orders me, the neighbor, as a face without exposing itself to me. The closer the face, the more imperious the demand. Levinas is quite aware of the similarity between the primacy of the other's face for him and the icon of Christ for the Christian. I quote, I say about the neighbor's face what the Christian probably says about the face of Christ. For him, it is through the other that I can orient myself towards God, just as it is through the Son that the Christian has access to God, the Father. As he writes, it is indeed typical of Christianity to have relegated the father to the background. One could almost say that for him, the Torah and the commandments play the role of Christ in Christianity. To quote the title of an article of his, Loving the Torah More Than God. One could certainly try to identify echo, echoes of Christian theological vocabulary within a number of key concepts of Levinas's thought. I have always referred to the icon, I have already, sorry, I have already referred to the icon and to the person under the face. But one must above all insist on the Christian dimensions of substitution, a major concept of the later Levinas, developed in Otherwise Than Being. Substitution transforms persecuted subjectivity into a hostage of the other. It also hides under the docetic theologies of the first Christian centuries, precisely under both Jewish Christianity and Gnosticism. To be sure, there's no reason to expect Levinas to have known the abstruse theologies of ancient Christian heresies. Through its total subordination to the other, substitution transforms the subject. Love and passivity. These concepts of Levinas's vocabulary are crucial for describing the state of the suffering subject in the depth of the abyss. It looks as if this vocabulary retained the echo of the mystical literature Levinas was reading in the stalag. What seems to be really close to Levinas both to the structure of his thought and to his vocabulary is quietism. The 17th century mystical movement born from the teachings of Miguel de Molinos and mainly known in France through the writings of Fenelon and Madame Guillon. Did the Jewish prisoner Levinas rediscover through osmosis as it were the mental structures of quietism and in Teresa of Avila? This possibility cannot, of course, be proven. At the same time, it cannot be refuted. In a beautiful book, Le Pure Amour de Platon à Lacan, Jacques Lebrun has a long chapter on Fenelon. In modern literature, he proposes to compare to his quietist themes some of Maurice Blanchot's writings. Now Blanchot remained for decades Levinas's closest friend. This is less than a proof. But it may well retain a trace to speak of the temptation of Christianity in Levinas is not is that not misusing language that would be a serious accusation as one deals with his intim- intimate beliefs with the very kernel of his Jewish identity as we have seen Levinas describes this identity even before the Shoah as that of a sacrificial victim, but it is Levinas himself, who refers to a temptation, one that only the experience of having survived the Shoah could help overcome. What we must understand is that this temptation is inscribed in the very thread of the French language that the young Levinas was discovering. Language is not for him a simple technical instrument, an abstract carrier of thought. It is a whole civilization that French that the French language carries with it, just like Russian or Hebrew. In the realm of medieval Islam, uh, sorry, just like Russian or Hebrew. And this civilization is Christian down to its marrow. Levinas' writing in French is mutatis mutandis, like Maimonides' writing in Arabic. In the realm of medieval Islam, Jewish and Christian philosophers writing their treatises in the lingua franca of the world, were writing their treatises in the lingua franca of their world. But by using the language of the Quran, they were adopting, sometimes unconsciously, the categories, the structures, and the sensitivities of Islamic thought. What seems obvious for students of medieval philosophy should also be true for anyone seeking to understand a modern thinker within his or her Zitzimleben. We may now try to answer the question of what has been called Levinas's Christianizing Drift. A drift that started in the mid-1960s until its full blossoming with the publication of Otherwise Than Being in 1976. My sense is that Levinas's attitude towards Christianity did not really change over the decades. The ambiguity was always there. And what Eugen Rosenstock Hussi, Rosenzweig's cousin, who had converted to Christianity, called the Jewish obstinacy, remained for Levinas the Jewish no, the determination of a stiff-necked people ready for the supreme sacrifice, a people of priests offering itself in sacrifice for the salvation of humankind, That sounds like a daring reading of the letter to the Hebrews. Bergson, Veil, Levinas, these emblematic figures who permit us to scan the spectrum of some remarkable opinions on the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, held by thinkers who had been born Jews and who were writing in French at the time of the Nazi genocide. Henri Bergson is timorous, banal, second-hand reading of the Hebrew Bible renders his spiritual conversion blander. Although he claims to be a Christian in his faith, one retains the suspicion that this faith remains somewhat shallow. Simon Vey, a radical rejection of Judaism as established upon metaphysical antisemitism. Her de Judaized Christ had become has become the disincarnated disincarni- disincarni- Christos, the good in Greek of the the Gnostics, Christos instead of Christos, preventing her from becoming a true Christian. Emmanuel Levinas, the only one among them to reclaim his Jewish identity, has also found more than the two others, I think, the right tone for speaking about Christianity and its relationship with Judaism, as well as about relations between Christians and Jews. To be sure, conversion to Christianity is not anymore, as Heine famously said, the entry ticket to European civilization. But seeing in Europe and in in its languages religiously neutralized territories might be a bit premature. Thank you.
0: So we thank Professor Strumser for his wonderful lecture, very rich opening in many different directions. And he's also generously willing to take your questions and to carry on the discussion. So please raise your hand if you'd like to go first. Yes, please.
3: Thank you so much. I understand there's some debate as to whether Simone Veil was baptized before she died. Um, I believe the official view is that she wasn't, but um, in a book called Spirit, Nature, and Community, uh, Dogenes Allen and, and Eric Springstead offer what they think is, is, is a neglected eyewitness. It, any thoughts about whether she was baptized or the significance of that debate, yeah. one
2: way or the other? I'm not a, a vague scholar, uh, but as far as I know, no, there's no doubt. She was not baptized, but... She has her groupies uh, to this day, and uh, could they prove that she has b- had been baptized, uh, they could try to make an argument for her um, sanctification. Uh, um, my guess is that uh, had she been baptized and uh, had a, such a process, uh, uh, started at the Vatican it would have stopped very early because she was a real heretic uh, but uh, but she was not baptized yes i wanted to thank you uh, i'm
4: thank I've done some of the similar cross-studies.
0: Can you speak louder, please? I've
4: done some similar, the, uh, the cross-studies you've done, I've done... Uh, I've done I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Some of the studies that you've done across uh, categories, I've done that as well, and I've found your explanation or your, your presentation very, very useful and very, very helpful uh, to bring Teresa of Avila into the discussion with Simone Weil and the philosophers and then uh, the roots of Judaism. All of that is, is a very rich, and I I don't have a question. It was just wonderful. to very hear very hear. Very Thank much. you Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> Thank you. Uh,
5: <clears throat> was the comparison to Maimonides and his appropriation or you know sort of absorption of Islamic structures of thought? Was that meant to help to understand all three of the figures, or was it largely Levinas that you were re- referring to
6: in that?
2: Uh, no, it's true. It, it, it's well, in a sense, I, I, I was thinking about Levinas, who also thinks about, uh, has written also about my money. That was what I, I tried to uh, to understand. Levinas, who is a Jewish thinker, I mean, doesn't work with and they because they are not Jewish thinkers in any significant sense. So, uh, so it refers to Levinas, and what I say, I give the example of Maimonides as an example. I could have given many other examples. Right. What I said is that when you take, when you accept a language, when you write in a language, you write within a civilization. And this civilization has very clear Religious not only roots but dimensions, and for someone like Levinas, they were central to his experience of the French language. Now, you could be you, you could write French in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s and be a complete atheist and not, I mean, uh, Sartre grew up in a, in a not Catholic. Protestant family and uh, you, you, you could you could get out of, your, of this uh, Christian dimension of, of the French language. Levinas, what I, what I said is that because he himself as a young man in Russian, <laughs> had a great sensitivity to the religious dimensions of the language. when he discovers French, For him, he also he he he, he discovers French with its Christian dimensions. So no. So my the short answer is that it it fits only with Levinas and with the two others. Thank you. Yes. Um, Now the the question. Yes.
4: Uh, In your studies of Teresa Avila, did you um, the study of uh, Teresa Avila? Yes. Her um, her grandfather was a forced. Uh, converted Jew. Yes. And it, uh, some of her her self formation, her constructs of self, uh, which which I s- I was when I was studying them, I couldn't I couldn't find them, and the Jesuits couldn't find that construct. And when I went over to Maimonides, she had this interesting construct of 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 spirit and soul that was much more familiar in the Jewish uh, kind of breakdown than it yeah. was in the Well, Western
2: I you know I. Years ago we spent five months in Spain on a sabbatical and, uh, and I, I read some of the Spanish mystics also and, and some, uh, some of the scholarship. There is a long tradition of scholarship trying I mean, to find Jewish roots of Christian Spanish mysticism. Up to the Kabbalah recently, up to Spinoza even. But, but it's usually never really convincing, n- never quite convincing, although there must have been something. In the case of, of, of uh, Teresa, her grandfather was forced to convert. And was actually a, a converso, But but the family lived in Toledo. There was a rich family from Toledo, mm-hmm. and they were found to be Judaizers. And expelled from Toledo and moved to Avila as a penance, or in, in some in some way, and therefore that must not have been very far. I mean, she, she must have. She knew. Yeah. Now, uh, a, a few generations later, uh, she couldn't have become a Carmelite because the Car- there were many Jews in, in the Carmelite monasteries in her generation. Two generations later, you you had to demonstrate uh, limpieza de sangre. Uh, purity of, of blood. So she could not have become a Carmelite a uh, little while later.
4: Interesting. That I didn't know. Thank you.
2: There's a head in the back,
0: I think, for a while back right there.
4: Yes, I
6: wanted to ask you this. This is not a, a scholarly question, but when you spoke about the duty to identify the Jewish person, to, uh, or a Jewish Person's
2: duty to identify as a Jew. Did I hear you say that? Did I? Am I correct, that? duty. Yes. Okay. I mean, so why would it be a duty? It can be a, a, a will. Well, I mean, it can be a, one can interpret it as a moral duty, but it's not. I I, I don't understand your meaning. Your well, of the I word I hear duty. The, 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 many many people many.
6: Jewish people that I know identify
2: themselves as cultural Jews? Well, I identify myself as a cultural Christian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's what, when I I wanted to wake up my students in Jerusalem, I told, I would tell them, culturally, you are all Christians. (laughs) Wake up, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I thought, uh,
6: you know, our culture now is so, um, what is the word, secular? And many Christians are, you know, we, we yes. call not religious Christians, or not uh, You know, affiliated with church and such, but culturally Christian. Is that all the same thing in
2: your mind? No, not, not really, because Jewish identity and Christian identity are not, uh, uh, don't have the same structure. That's that's another lecture really uh, <laughs> and, and what was the case in Europe was still to some extent is, is the case in Europe today in France or in other European countries is, is framed in very different terms in, in America and that's again another lecture <laughs> yes
5: so thank you very much for your talk Was very inspiring. Um, I have two questions. I've been studying. I'm a French sociologist, and I've studied Durkheim's relation to Judaism and Berg with Bergson. And uh, I have a question: When you're saying that the language, the relation to the language, is something very important, I would like to know what you think of the. uh, philosophical language, because when Bergson and Duquesne were at school, it were um, the teaching of philosophy wasn't secure. It, it wasn't secure the teaching of philosophy. They, they had uh, Christian uh, philosophers, and Kant was the main figure the important figure, which is not a secular uh, philosophy either. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I just wanted to have your opinion about what kind of contextualization you can make compared to the language, French language, or French language of philosophy at that time, and history of ideas. And if, if you follow that path, the question I have is do they compromise with their profession or do you think, or according to the data you have, it's a temptation to Christianity it can be it linked to the fact that you have to be a professional philosopher in France at that point for Bergson. And Durkheim? he was a sociologist. And he said, I don't have anything to do with religion, but writing to monks, for example, he would say, OK, we have a problem with anti-Semitism, and we have to react to others. So this is this Leo Strauss argument that in, ter- in times of persecution, you compromise publicly with the main discourse, which is the discourse of institutionalization or entrance to a But you don't, um, it doesn't go to a certain point inside. We have this, the same controversy with Polanyi. Right? His family is saying he never was tempted by Christianity, and everyone who has studied Polanyi say he was a Christian.
2: Uh, okay, uh, so you you ask about whom? About Bergson? About about the uh, part of him? Uh, 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 yeah, about Bergson mainly. Bergson, what I know, uh, we know. Uh, I tell you what I know. There is a very good biography of Berge's from published a few years ago. His father, his grandfather, came from Warsaw mm-hmm. to France. His father was a composer, a musical composer. Got a job at the mm-hmm. conservatorium in in Geneva, where the young Henri Bell grew up. Went to to. A, School and, and then the, the mother came from a Jewish family from England, and the family was a, a family with clear Jewish identity. I don't know how kosher they were, but, but a, a clear Jewish identity. Uh, and the young Bergson then stayed in Paris. For the end of high school and and for his studies, while the family moved to England, so he didn't stay with his parents, and that's all we know. And there's never a trace in his papers, in his, uh, of any knowledge of Judaism. It's inconceivable to me that he didn't get some kind of Sunday school pre-bar mitzvah teaching. He probably was bar mitzvah, I guess. And this doesn't appear, that, that that was very strange for me when I read that. that he accepted uh, Lock, Stocks and Barrels, the traditional Christian, uh, French, Renan whatever, uh, vision of Judaism, it's so banal and so disappointing intellectually. Uh, I don't think that he has a secret Jewish idea, certainly not.
7: And, uh, yeah. Um, uh, thank you for this lecture. Um, considering Levinas's articulation of Judaism, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how he understood and practiced halacha, Jewish, uh, Jewish law.
2: Yeah. Um, I don't. The young Levinas, uh, Levinas grew up in a family in Kovno, Kaunas today, Kovno in Lithuania. His father was a had a bookstore, and they sold also also, uh, writing uh, material. Uh, So in a modernist family, uh, Levinas insists that the first thing was to have the children receive Hebrew lessons. (coughs) Hebrew lessons meant not Talmud lessons. Hebrew lessons meant modern Jews, uh, very Jewish, obviously they did eat kosher at, at home I and mean, there's no, no way people didn't eat kosher there, but it was not a particularly orthodox family, I guess. The young us in, before the war, I don't know, very Jewish but traditionally is probably <coughs> not, very, not very interested in Jewish ritual—that's mm-hmm. my guess. After the war, when I knew him, he was a more or less, more or less Orthodox Jew with some, uh, with some humor. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so. I have two
1: questions. Um, first, uh, on Vey's comments on Israel and, and Judaism, which you characterized, I think, is odious, or p- parts of those odious. I feel like that, that often invites people to do psychological studies of Fay, as you said, it sometimes uh, to, yes. t- to look at her psyche. But I wonder, to the degree to which that exonerates the tradition that she inverts on her reading, which is filled with all of those, you know, the French Christian tradition, which is filled with those very odious views of Judaism. So to some degree, it's not. Her, it's not peculiar that she holds these views. It's only peculiar that she holds these views. I,
2: uh, <laughs> odious. I answer this first question. Sure. That's, mm-hmm. uh, the, odious. I used only once in yeah. this paper <laughs> <way> about, <laughs> about uh, her uh, recommendation in 1943 in London. Yeah. She did not know about Auschwitz, but she knew enough yeah. that. Jewish kids having survived Nazism should be baptized. That, 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 I think, oh, I is, agree is really I, repulsive. I uh, yeah, that's all. Okay. That's all. Uh, about tradition of anti-Judaism, that's, that's not the topic of the paper.
1: So then, let me ask you, this is a, I have a vague memory. Uh, someone in the audience may remember this better than I. There's a letter, I think, between Levinas and Buber? In which Levinas is, I think, voicing a concern about the state of Israel's decision to make Hebrew the, the national language.
2: No. Does anyone? Know? No, no, no. no this couldn't be. There, there is certainly a letter. Levinas wrote a chapter. There was a, a, a series called the Library of Living Philosophers by a certain Schnapps, I I forget, uh, in an American series. There was a Buber and Levinas writes a chapter and Buber writes him a letter of thanks for his chapter. I don't think there were many communications between them. I don't know, but Levinas has certainly no problem with Hebrew made uh, the official language of Israel.
1: There is a letter, uh, because, and I, because a friend of mine translated it. I just can't remember the details of it. But what struck me about it, in my, what I recall is that your comments about French is what, is what led me to ask this question. Because, as I recall, Levinas is concerned about, uh, to put it lightly, <laughs> what ghosts you might invoke by speaking in Hebrew. But what would happen? What. That, that, as you were saying, a language has a it has a civilization, and that there was some concern about what would what might come with the decision to reinvent.
2: Levinas from there is a letter recently published okay. by Levinas. Levinas and Blanchot uh, at the on the date the few days after the establishment of the State of Israel in May 1948, Blanchot writes to Levinas to say I'm thinking about you now. And Levinas answers Blanchot, these two letters have been published recently. I think this is it. Yes. That's, that's, that's I, I know, the, right. this friend is a common friend. Yes, that's uh, right. And, uh, and, and here Levinas says, this is a very interesting document, Levinas says how moved he is by the establishment of the new state of Israel and says, all the students in my school, he's the principal of the Ecole Normal. were so happy and I was so worried mm. that day. I'm so worried about the future, about, and he knows, he, he's aware of all the theological and problematics. This is what you're referring. But, so I mean, this is a, a great lucidity but not, which is true today too, but, but not, she uh, doesn't object to it in a way. Okay. Um, this is also a question that
7: touches okay. on I
2: think if you stand up, people will hear the question. Sure. Right?
7: Yeah. You <laughs> um, briefly alluded to Blanchot's uh, relationship to Levinas in your talk and Blanchot's relationship to Levinas, and I believe you said that um, there's a connection between Blanchot and Pietism, and that through that... Pietism. Pietism. Yes. You mean like... No, Pietism. Okay. Could could you just repeat that part of your lecture? (laughs) (laughs)
6: Yes.
2: uh, Well, uh, you know, it's not really essential. But what I say is that the vocabulary of Levinas is striking. It's the vocabulary of, let's say, actually, I had a discussion I gave uh, my friend Bernie McGinn at at Chicago, the French original of this uh, text. And he says, maybe not quietism. Maybe you could say mystical passivity. That's good enough for him. Uh, so the, the the importance of Levinas for uh, passivity, the importance for Levinas of yes. passivity, the, this is what the mystic is. The mystic doesn't do anything, receives only, and this <coughs> radical passivity, which you find in Teresa of Avila, you find also in Miguel de Molinos, and then in. Penelon and, um, and Madame Guyon in the French tradition. I didn't say that Levinas read all these people. I said that it's, it's the same structure, and he could have found it only in Teresa of Avila. That's right, because this we know he he read, and then it wouldn't be quietism really per se. But it's uh, and Blanchot is by this, uh, this friend of mine, uh, Jacques Lebrun. Writes this very beautiful book on the history of the concept of pure love from Plato to Lacan. And pure love is what the what the quietist, uh, uh, pure love of God in total passivity. You don't even expect God to love you back. And he says, Blanchot is in French, modern French literature, the perfect example of this kind of quietism. And I said, Blanchot was Levinas' best friend. Hmm. OK, thank you. I understand now. Yes? Yes, Professor. Thank you. We know that uh, Levinas would not have claimed that he was a
0: you know, Talmudic scholar on one hand. On the other hand, he was a keen but
2: student. He was my first Talmud teacher. Exactly. Yes. He was a keen student and lecturer. So what influence does this have on his thought? What? his uh, Talmudic studies on his side what the
1: influence of his Talmudic studies on, on his, his on thinking his, on, his,
2: on his thinking, on the structure of his stuff uh, Levinas discovered the Talmud I mean he must have studied some Talmud as a child and then for years he studied he was a student of philosophy and literature and so on, obviously he was not interested after the war he meets in Paris a mysterious man whom he calls only Monsieur Chouchani. This Monsieur Chouchani lived in France, eventually died in Montevideo in the 1960s. There were rumors about him. Uh, he was like um, like a trap. Uh, like a tramp, I mean, dressed and so on, like a tramp, uh, but a genius in Talmud and not only in Talmud, in many things. There were rumors that uh, he had been arrested by the Nazis and uh, he was circumcised, so the only thing he could claim in his defense is that he was a Muslim and not a Jew. So they had him. Uh, they, 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 they had him pass an exam in, in Islamic, uh, is, Islamic uh, theology and he passed the exam. <laughs> yeah. He got uh, And, and uh, this Shushani, this, uh, Elie Wiesel, also met this same Shushani and wrote a short story about this man. And I remember Levinas telling us that Wiesel is not really a good writer. I mean, he only <laughs> described the the, all the exterior aspects of Shushani and didn't describe his genius in reading the Talmud. The depth, uh, what it was, I don't know. I, mean, I can only tell you what, what Levinas said it was. And he had a friend who was a serious Talmud scholar and they were teaching together and once a week and both we were students and that's what I can say.
3: I was interested in what you said about Levinas. You know, the G- the Jewish rejection of a Christian interpretation of the suffering servant passage in Isaiah obviously is is something that has a very very vast history. I was and one of the options for rejecting that is to say that no, the passage refers to Israel, as you said that he interpreted. I was wondering if it, if the idea of saying and taking sort of the the Christian interpretation of the expiatory nature of the suffering of Israel f- on behalf of the of the world if that was something that also has deep roots or that or would you know or that levinas would have come across that idea in other places or that's something that he
2: would have you know would have been more original to his thought the, the vocabulary of levinas there is Christ, is a christian vocabulary that's what i wanted to say I mean, there are there, there is a, a very long jewish tradition of uh, exegesis of this chapter of course but the, the vocabulary is, is completely Christian, in French. I and mean, uh, this is what is remarkable and, uh, and was is felt uh, by, by anyone reading really. this. Mm-hmm. So you would see that as being somewhat new in terms of that? I right? think so, I think so, yes. And I, I must say that when I will uh, try to publish this article in, in French, uh, because I want, I want people who read French. I mean, the texts are all in French, and my translations were done for the for the lecture. But uh, it's very difficult to translate uh, these texts. Uh, I'm not sure that it will make me only friends. Uh, the publication of this article, because Levinas has become a kind of icon. Uh, Levinas was known first. Became famous among Catholic scholars first in Fribourg in Switzerland and uh, and Louvain in in now louvain in in in, 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 uh, in Belgium and uh, there was the the Husserlian tradition of uh, of uh, uh, of phenomenology and they they had. When I studied with Lévinas, Lévinas was not really... He was known by French Jews, but not really... He was in his 60s at the time, he had published his books, but not really... They didn't take him very seriously, but the the Christian theologians and philosophers were writing doctoral dissertations on Lévinas and so on, inviting him and so on. He became later a Jewish icon mm-hmm. in France, and in, uh, in America, and, uh, and, and so on. And, and to say that he has a Christian vocabulary will probably upset many people, which is what I like. Do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have
0: a question for you? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking in terms of. Um, Simone Weil and this the kind of her branching out and exploring interreligiously, even the Hindu and so on, whether it's at all related to the phenomenon you're explaining, which is, is largely unknown to me, uh, the interest even among French writers in the East and other religions. So Messignon's interest in Islam, uh, mont and Lesso in Hinduism, de Lubac's book on Buddhism, is this changing the, the Christian even French-speaking culture, in a way that would have any impact on the figures that you put before us, or is that something else? The that answer, really, the
2: short answer is no. Actually, in the French text, I have a long, long—I have a page or two on the paradox of the, the paradox of the. I stress the complete ignorance of Islam for uh, Bergson. Bergson was a colleague of Massignon at the Collège de France. There's not a word mm. about Sufism. And, uh, Sufism could have been good for him. And the same is true in Simon Veil. Uh, Islam was ignored by the scholars, but was not, uh, uh, and I, I will say something. If, if you give me two more minutes on this, I can say something. Was completely ignored. Uh, Simone Weil, Bergson reads Buddhism and Hinduism vaguely, but doesn't. Has read some translations. Simone Weil studied Sanskrit for years to read the Upanishads. She made very serious efforts for years, but but this complete. I mean, I think that here. Islam suffers from being too close to Judaism (laughs) in in a sense. uh, uh, Here you see the tradition in not only in France, in the history of religions in Europe in the 19th century. In France, certainly with uh, the tradition coming from Renan, to, to say that there are two great two great families of peoples in the world, the Indo-European families of languages and then of peoples, of races, they, they say, Indo-Europeans and Semites. The Semites could only have one idea, the idea of one god. Uh, that's the French. The, the German scholars are much more serious. Don't say such the and, uh, and then there is, later on, in the late 19th century, the idea that the kind of short circuit that, of, of course, Jesus was born in Palestine. So to some extent, he was a Jew. But actually, a Galilee was full of non-Jews. So he may have been a non-Jew, and, he, uh, and an, an area. And you have that before the Nazi theologians, you have that French historians of religions. Emile uh, Burnouf, the great Eugène Burnouf, historian of, of, of Buddhism, was uh, Renaud's teacher. The, the nephew Emile Burnouf, who is a classical scholar and historian of religions, says, we, Christianity is indo-european and therefore we we don't want to hear about anything Semitic yeah. so that's the truth thank you Great. Uh, time
3: for
0: a couple more questions yeah. then we will
3: stop uh, well it's so apropos please. your comment yeah. and these uh, comment these response um, I think um, there's a distortion in terms of the way we look at they which is to overemphasize her Christianity and to underemphasize her Hinduism. And uh, this was, in fact, from the very first publication of the book that was created by Thibon on Gravity and Grace, which systematically excised the very, very significant engagement with Hinduism which is present. Number two, um, her brother was very, very interested in Hinduism and in mysticism, and he was oftentimes a role model for her so I think that was the most immediate influence okay. mm-hmm. on her. And number three, in the correspondence with her lifelong friend uh, and her biographer, Simon Pettamont, mm-hmm. she would oftentimes reply, um, uh, sign her letters, yours in Krishna. Okay. Um, so, I
2: know
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as far as Islam, I think she was kind of wondering about Islam. Because, uh, to the extent that she tried to get a position in Algeria just before, a teaching position, just before the war. So I think there was a certain curiosity, but you're correct in saying there's absolutely nothing in her writing yeah. that indicates any uh, reflection or engagement.
0: We've been going a long time, and there are two hands that have been up over here and over there, and maybe we could call it quits after that, so. Okay, I just have a quick question. Do you think
4: that his Christianized vocabulary was built in
2: some extent. That that it reflects Heidegger's influence. Yes, yeah.
7: it accounts for some of his no.
2: vocabulary as well. It's a, it's a it's it's a good question uh, because obviously there was uh, the influence of Heidegger in the young and not so young within very problematic, of course. But I don't think so because it's it's related to the French and it's a it's a much more Look, I'm not a great reader of Heidegger, so I can't I can't give a clear answer. But my instinct is that this is a much more religious uh, uh, vocabulary than than Heidegger. Heidegger, of course, has the Catholic tradition under him and so, on, but he doesn't. It's he doesn't use. You don't you don't see that in his vocabulary. So, my question, my, my answer is I don't think so. And then one last question yeah. over here.
7: Yeah. Um, I, just uh, note that you saying that uh, Jesus was born in Palestine, but at that time his country was not Palestine or Palestine. There was no such place. His country was whole different. And can you name the Jesus country, how it was named?
2: Well, Palestina, prima, Palestina, Secunda, Palestina. No, it was after yeah
7: after Jesus died, not in Palestine. Well, uh, this is the
2: name of the country. We sp- we're speaking English today. I mean, I mean, ah, no, 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 I didn't no, give no. the lecture. <laughs> in I Yeah,
7: well, Even in English, it was not Palestine or Palestine. It was not. How was it, it called? could say it's Israel. Um, mm. Yeah, but it was not, uh, yeah, in a way it was. Galilee,
2: a, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if there was a real country. Come he comes from Galilee. Jesus comes from Yes, there. And it that's, was a kingdom of Judea
7: right. at that time because there was a king, a Judean king. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, uh, the country was called Judea. Yes, but, but I, I was
2: speaking, but I was I, I didn't give a lecture about the historical Jesus. I, know. I spoke about I about know. about how people in the nineteenth century yes. wrote about him. And yes, they said La Palestine. Believe it, me, that's what they but said. But these
7: people may be also wrong because they apparently, like you, didn't own the name of the country where Je- Jesus was born and lived. They don't know, even now.
2: It, no, no, it, 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 it. Okay, let's, uh, okay. let's, not, let's okay. discuss that.
0: <laughs> so we've had a very full evening, a wonderful lecture, a wonderful set of discussion questions. The conversation can begin, continue a little bit informally for a while. You don't have to rush from the room. But let us close our formal session by thanking our...